Hi, I'm Elizabeth from Hiram, Ohio. Our area in Geauga County has been severely carved out around Portage County, almost circling it. Uh, Middlefield Village has been carved out. Um, it's very obvious that gerrymandering in Ohio is tipping the balance of power and justice. What I'd like to see is get rid of gerrymandering. In Ohio, we have 88 counties. We vote at the state and local level by county. Let's get rid of gerrymandering at the congressional level and the presidential level by voting by county. In November, voters will pick their representatives in the midterm elections. But some of those voters have also been picked by political parties. This year, judges in Georgia, Louisiana, Ohio, and Alabama ruled that those states' congressional maps were illegally drawn around partisan or racial lines to favor Republicans. I say gerrymandering is like beauty. It's in the eye of the beholder. If it's my district and you didn't draw it like I wanted it drawn, that's gerrymandering. That's Alabama Republican State Senator Jim McClendon speaking with NPR's Michelle Martin. Back in May, the Supreme Court said it was too close to Alabama's midterm election to order new maps. That set a precedent allowing all four states to use illegally gerrymandered maps this fall. After the break, we dive into what this means for future elections and for voting rights. And how close is too close to an election to change things? We also hear from voters in the state of Alabama. This show is part of our Remaking America project, where we look at how democracy is and is not working for everyone. It's a partnership with six public radio stations around the country. And for this episode, we partnered with WBHM in Birmingham, Alabama. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. Let's jump into the conversation by welcoming our first guests. Bertrand Ross is a professor at the University of Virginia School of Law and director of the Karsh Center for Law and Democracy there. He teaches election law with a focus on marginalized communities in the democratic process. Bertrand, welcome to 1A. Thank you. It's great to be here. Also joining us is Steve Vladek, a professor at the University of Texas School of Law and expert on the Supreme Court. He's the author of the forthcoming book, The Shadow Docket, How the Supreme Court Uses Stealth Rulings to Amass Power and Undermine the Republic. Steve, welcome back to 1A. Thanks, Jen. Great to be with you. So let's start with the basics. Steve, what separates gerrymandering from redistricting? Yeah, so I mean, redistricting is something that Every state does. Um, Every state does it after the census every 10 years. And the idea there is that you have to redraw the maps because there are changes in population growth, changes in population distribution, and maybe even, Jen, changes in how many seats a state has in the House of Representatives. The gerrymandering piece of it is when states use their power to redistrict, to redraw those lines, to draw those lines in a way that creates either partisan or racial inequity. Um, Basically, if you have like a 55-45 state like Texas, where I am, and the state legislature draws the maps to basically squeeze all of the Democrats into a small number of districts or squeeze members of one particular race into a small number of districts, it disproportionately weights the votes of its voters so that the folks who have maybe a small majority in the state house end up with a much larger majority in the congressional delegation, in the next round of state elections, and so on. So the idea behind gerrymandering is drawing lines in a way that creates inequity, whether it's partisan inequity, 
racial inequity, socioeconomic inequity, just ways that are not necessarily natural, proportional, or representative. And, and to be clear, is all gerrymandering illegal? Um, virtually no gerrymandering is illegal. So um, the Supreme Court has said racial gerrymandering is unconstitutional, but of course it's very hard to prove racial gerrymandering. And with regard to partisan gerrymandering, you know, the Supreme Court has said it might be unconstitutional, but the court has also said it's not justiciable, meaning it's not a claim that federal courts have the power or ability to resolve. So, you know, Jen, one of the things that we're seeing is because of that Supreme Court decision, a 2019 ruling called Rucho versus Common Cause, partisan gerrymandering challenges have increasingly been brought in state courts as opposed to federal court. And naturally, where much of this litigation is playing out today, the claims that are being brought in federal court, like in the Alabama case and the Georgia case and the Louisiana case, those are racial gerrymandering claims, the only ones that really still have legs in federal courts today. As we said, these congressional maps have been deemed illegal by judges in those four states we mentioned. And yet they're still being used in the midterm elections. Steve, how? Yeah, so this is where we get into the sort of the quirks of nerdy legal procedure. Um, So the Alabama case is a really good example. It was the first case. In Alabama, there were two different district courts that issued injunctions, court orders blocking Alabama from using its maps, um, basically telling Alabama, try again. Um, And those injunctions were issued in January. Well, on February 7th, the Supreme Court, in an unsigned and unexplained order, granted Alabama's request to stay those injunctions. In other words, to freeze the injunctions while Alabama challenges those decisions on appeal. Um, The Supreme Court is set to hear Alabama's appeal later this fall. But because of this stage and because of this interim order by the Supreme Court, the injunction has no force, meaning Alabama's maps, even though they were held to be unlawful by two different district courts, can still be used because there's nothing blocking them. And that's how we've gotten from these court rulings that these maps are unlawful, that they were drawn in a way that violates the Voting Rights Act and or the Constitution to you can use them anyway because the Supreme Court has intervened and put those maps back into effect. Bertrand, explain a little bit more about why Alabama's map is considered gerrymandered along racial lines. It's considered gerrymandered along racial lines because it is it was held by the district courts that to dilute the vote of African Americans. And what that means is that it diminished the power of African Americans to represent their candidates of choice. Under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act and the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause, racial minority groups have protection for their for an equal opportunity to elect candidates of their choice. What happens um, in states like Alabama and other states is that Voting is rather racially polarized in the sense that white voters will not vote for black preferred candidates and black voters will often not vote for white preferred candidates. And since white black voters are a minority in a state like Alabama, they would be unable to elect candidates of their choice at all unless districts are drawn in a way that provides them that opportunity. So what the court found with respect to the Alabama redistricting is that the Alabama state legislature had failed to draw a sufficient number of districts in which African-Americans have the opportunity to elect candidates of their choice. They drew one such district um, out of the seven that they drew, even though the even though African-Americans make up 27% of the population in Alabama. 
And so the court, after applying the standard, found that the Alabama state legislature would have to draw two such districts in order to provide African-Americans with the equal opportunity to elect their candidates of their choice. Um, and that's the order that the court ultimately issued a stay on. And as a result, the map in which um, only one district provides African-Americans with the opportunity to elect candidates of their choice is being used in this next election. Now, as you said, Steve, in January, that federal court in Alabama struck down the state's newly drawn maps. Then the Supreme Court temporarily halted that decision, and Justice Kavanaugh said, quote, when an election is close at hand, the rules of the road must be clear and settled. So those maps, considered racially gerrymandered, again, are going to be used in Alabama in the midterms. And Justice Kavanaugh cited the Purcell Doctrine. What is that doctrine, and how does it apply here, Steve? Yeah, so the Purcell Doctrine is this incredibly complicated and obscure chunk of the Supreme Court's jurisprudence. It's not about the substance of challenges to election rules and voting rules and redistricting rules. It's about the timing. Um, and so Purcell is this uh, 2006 short, cryptic Supreme Court decision, um, one the court handed down without argument, without significant briefing. And the basic idea, Jen, is that, you know, as you quoted Justice Kavanaugh, the closer that the courts come to an election, the more reluctant they should be to change the rules. Um, Basically, that as Election Day draws nigh, courts should be very wary about decisions that would change what actually happens on the ground because the risk of voter confusion and the risk of, you know, sort of interfering in the election goes up as the election approaches. Um, Framed that way, Purcell actually seems like a perfectly reasonable idea. The last thing we want courts doing, right, is throwing a wrench into an election right before it happens. But there are at least two major problems with how the doctrine has been applied, both of which I think we see in the Alabama case. Uh, Major problem number one is, you know, not all changes have a risk of of increasing voter confusion, right? If Alabama were to adopt different maps and were to tell folks, okay, here's your polling place, um, you know, the risk of voter confusion is not the same as if like the night before an election, we change who's allowed to vote. But it's the second part, Jen, that I think got everyone's dander really up, which is how close to an election is too close. In Purcell itself, right, the Supreme Court's decision was in October, late October, before Election Day in November. You know, here, the district court decision blocking the maps was not just 10 months before the general election. It was four and a half months before the primary. And the district courts both found that there was plenty of time for Alabama to fix the problem, that you know there were other maps that didn't raise the problem that Bertrall has outlined um, with the sort of dilution of black votes in Alabama. Those maps were already actually proposed. The first time around, it had taken the Alabama legislature less than a week to draw the map that was being challenged. So, you know, Jen, we have a problem of sort of a principle that might make some sense in the abstract being applied in a situation where it really doesn't seem to make sense. What's the history behind using gerrymandering to dilute black voters' power? That is the history that follows after the Voting Rights Act. So the Voting Rights Act um, provided um, for protections of African-American voting rights, and the immediate effect of the Voting Rights Act was to increase opportunities to vote. What followed were efforts by Southern states to manipulate the process to deny the ability of African-Americans to influence the political process. That goes all the way back to the um, 1970s and has persisted um, to this day, but the Voting Rights Act has provided the protections African-Americans have needed. 
Let's bring two new voices into the conversation. Evan Milligan is lead plaintiff in Merrill v. Milligan, the Supreme Court case challenging Alabama's congressional maps. He's also executive director of Alabama Forward. That organization advocates for civic engagement and progressive policies. Evan, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jen. Also with us is Alabama Forward's Kadita Stone. She's also a plaintiff in the case, and she lives in Congressional District 2. That includes area north and south of Montgomery. Kadita, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. We also want to hear from you. Are you a voter in a gerrymandered district, or do you think the way your state drew congressional maps is fair, or would you like to see changes? Tweet us at 1A or send us an email at 1A at WAMU.org. Evan, you live in District 7 in Alabama. That includes parts of Birmingham and Montgomery. Tell us more about the district where you live and what makes it unique in the state. Sure. So District 7 is a collection of communities uh, in Montgomery, in in the state of Alabama's Black Belt area, which is mainly the central region of the state going from the Mississippi line to the Georgia line. Um, And this is an area of the state that was historically associated with the, the, you know, antebellum plantation economy. The soil is very rich there and conducive to the commodities industries here. And so uh, enslaved people were brought there to work on plantations and then after 1865, um, you know, we are the descendants of those of those original families um, still living in those communities today. Montgomery, the state's capital, would be the largest city um, within the Black Belt region of the state, and so it's a, it's certainly a, a place of historical significance, cultural significance, um, unique, you know, types of food. Uh, most of our uh, uh, religious, historically black religious de- denominations have deep, deep ties to this area of the state, as well as our blues and artisan uh, traditions as far as quilt makers and things of that nature. Why did you bring this lawsuit? Well, we, uh, Kadita and I worked with a coalition of advocates here in Alabama for most of last year to, to uh promote training and, um, you know, funding and and really learning opportunities for people to understand the importance of not only the census data, but also how uh, the census shapes redistricting, how redistricting shapes voting outcomes, how voting outcomes shape uh, really our our on-the-ground realities. And so we were working to bring more people into the process in lieu of us no longer having the preclearance um, policy that Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act once provided. And just explain and course, what, that, what that did. So that was, that was a, a, a piece of the Voting Rights Act that allowed the, Depart- the Federal Department of Justice to review maps from uh, particularly southern states that had had histories of, of uh, you know, well-documented racial discrimination, to basically review uh, pr- proposed redistricted maps before they were before the legislatures were allowed to vote on those maps or or at least enact them, and so um, in in the you know in the 2010s in a, in a case called Shelby versus Holder that also originated here in Alabama, the, the Supreme Court basically um, undermined usage of Section Five and, and, and essentially said that it was no longer necessary to ensure uh, uh, voter protections. So, um, uh, you know, our coalition was aware that, well, we won't have that that policy going into this round of redistricting. So we really need as many citizens as possible or neighbors as possible to, to be following, uh, to, to understand and feel confident that they can interpret census data, that they can use free map-making tools 
online to to make maps that reflect uh, fair principles and and um, that that don't feature racial gerrymandering. And so that was we spent a lot of time doing that last year. And uh, when the the data was actually released, and our state uh, legislative apportion, uh, reapportionment committee began to uh, go around the state collecting notes and comments from sit from from uh, Alabamians, we weren't really responding to a draft map. We didn't actually see what the state was was considering at that point, and we didn't see uh, the draft, uh, you know, a draft of what that what that committee would ultimately bring forward until it, uh, the Monday before our special session started to actually review, um, you know, to, to to discuss redistricting. Mm-hmm. That that session started, I believe, in October on a Thursday. We saw the map for the first time that Monday because one of the members of the legislature was frustrated with the lack of transparency in the process mm-hmm. and link and leaked the map via Twitter. Kadita, I also want to hear about your district, District 2 in Alabama. How is your district different from the one Evan is in? Um, so I live in Congressional District 2, and it's um, it's more white as a um, bigger white population um, than District 2. But I think starting with just the history of Montgomery. Um, it's a very interesting place. We are the birthplace of the civil rights movement, but at the same time, the cradle of confederacy. Um, and so that can be seen throughout um, Congressional District 7 and 2. Um, but they are both two, they're both two distinctly different districts for sure. Mm. Evan, so you, you see the map put forward um, by, by the committee. And what was your initial reaction well, we 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 were uh, in our coalition actually scrambling because there wasn't a lot of time to even respond to it. The the session was starting, you know, within four days of us being able to see the map. And now, thankfully, we had been working together for almost a year at that point, so that we were able to do rapid responses and get testimony before uh, the various bodies of of our legislature um, to let them to ask them, you know. Did you did you conduct a racial polarization study? You had more time than you normally would have because of the impact of COVID. So, you know, why draw a map given the state's history of litigation around racial gerrymandering? Why draw a map that that features one congressional district uh, with with majority uh, voting age black population? Why why draw a map in that way if you haven't conducted that study? And you know we we didn't get a straight answer on that question. We submitted alternative maps uh, to the Senate. We attempted to get them in the in the state house, and they were voted down. So we we did our best to provide you know to at least make the state aware that there were many other alternatives to the state that they ultimately voted to uh, enact. And other members of our coalition were doing the same. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to imagine the. The emotional journey this has been for both of you. You know, you have this panel of judges in Alabama. They say the maps are racially discriminatory. Then the Supreme Court's decision allows Alabama to still use these maps in the midterm election. Kadita, what has this been like for you, knowing that in heading to the polls in November, you're you're locked into this map? Yeah, um, it's very disappointing um, because the legislator acted as if we're asking for something that's not already here. Uh, We're just asking for a fair piece of the pie. Everybody gets a piece of the pie and we're asking for our fair share. Um, 
there's a lack of black representation in the state of Alabama. And now we're at a point of where there's a percentage, 27% of Alabama, uh, black Alabamians are, um, there's a percentage that there can be black Alabamians represented. And that percentage is 27%. So it's actually very disappointing because we're not asking for, we're, we're not asking for something that's not already supposed to be given to us. Kadita, what do you feel is at stake right now in in Alabama when it comes to these congressional maps and and beyond? Everything, um, democracy itself. Um, so we aren't. We let's start. We aren't the only state that's going through uh, this this issue, arguing for Section Two of the Voting Rights Act. Section Five has already been taken away, and now it's Section Two. So when you ask what's at stake, everything, democracy. Um, you know, we talk, America talks about a country being founded on democracy. Well, this is a test to see if we are really true to that. Um, and so that's that's what that's what's at stake. Evan, your thoughts? I agree. Uh, the democracy being the opportunity we have to to bring new people into the process. Uh, we're at a time there's, you know, infectious disease um, epidemics are expected to to escalate. Climate um, climate disasters are are expected to escalate. Uh, fluctuations in in economic systems are expected. So this is a time where we need leadership. We need more people brought into the idea of free and fair elections and nonviolent transfer of power, multicultural um, uh, communities, and undermining some of these fundamental uh, uh, pillars and pieces of democracy right now is not only unwise, but it's dangerous, particularly in our state. Evan, a lot of people view maps in, in very abstract terms, but part of what I hear you describing is trying to connect the dots for people, trying to help them understand why these maps matter, why redistricting matters, and, and what it means for, for communities. How do you connect those dots for folks? Sometimes I tell stories because you know I, I have I'm 41 and I've spent most of my most of my life living not only in the Gulf region of the country but in in Montgomery, and they're just decades of stories. One I tell is my mother uh, was raised in in Montgomery in a neighborhood called Centennial Hill <clears throat> on 12, 1229 Hutchinson Street. It's right it's, it's diagonal to Oak Park, and when she was a child, if she stood on her porch. She could, you know, that that park was segregated, so it was a whites-only park. She could hear animals in the zoo. She could hear children swimming in the pools. She could hear, you know, other sorts of um, playground equipment or a merry-go-round or, or things of that nature. Her parent, her her grandma and her and her mother were paying taxes that were going to support that park, but they couldn't use it. After integration, after the after those facilities were integrated, the animals were pulled out. The the um, the pool was cemented up. A lot of the other things were pulled out, and so that's been a pattern throughout Alabama. And once something is integrated, once it becomes a more multicultural space, or once more Black people come in, now there's this fundamental critique of the the purpose and the value of that public service or the use of public space. Whereas prior to that integration, that was a public service or a public space that was enjoyed. It wasn't attacked or critiqued in the same way, and so. That's just that's not only my mother's story. That's my story too because I grew up in that house when we moved to Alabama, um, and when we when we moved back when I was a child, and spent time in that same community, 
And I saw instances where you had uh, community members trying to get things like basic plumbing, things that you would think would involve a city, where at the time our city government was not responsive. People would have to go to the state or go to the federal government to, to try to resolve things. And if you didn't have someone who was responsive to your needs, you didn't get those needs addressed. So having a second district would increase the opportunity for our community members who've been there seven, eight, nine generations to have basic service delivery. Mm. Evan, thanks for sharing that with us. That's Evan Milligan. He's the lead plaintiff in Merrill v. Milligan, the Supreme Court case challenging Alabama's congressional maps. He's also executive director of Alabama Forward. That organization advocates for civic engagement and progressive policies. And Alabama Forward's Kadita Stone is also with us. She's a plaintiff in the case, and she lives in Montgomery. Evan Kadita, thanks for your time. We'll get back to our conversation on illegal gerrymandering in just a moment. Remember, you can join us for future conversations. Just download the 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. Now let's get back to our conversation on illegally gerrymandered maps and why they're being used in the midterm elections. I want to play a clip here of Republican Alabama State Senator Jim McClendon. Again, he's speaking with Michelle Martin earlier this year. He was part of the committee that drew the maps in Alabama that judges there said were racially discriminatory. The courts have never told us what is a safe percentage to put in a district to allow someone in a minority district. They've never given us a guideline. Is it 55 percent? Is it 49 and a half? Is it 51? It's pretty hard to do that and assure uh, that you're going to get minority representation. And we should also say uh, the state senator says they drew the district's race blind. But Bertrand, are there national standards or guidelines for how congressional maps are drawn? I know the state senator is right in terms of there's no precise percentage that the courts have required with respect to drawing districts that give African-Americans equal opportunity to elect candidates of their choice. But the court has um, set precedent where majority-minority districts have been kind of a, a safe baseline um, by which you can you know, provide some assurance that um, African-Americans and other racial minorities will be able to elect their candidate of choice. If you have a majority of the pop- voting-age population that is a, one um, particular racial minority group, at the very least, they can act as a check on whoever is going to be elected from that particular district. And I would say with respect to the state senator, he makes um, the very case for why it's important for district courts to intervene in these cases to provide the state legislature with guidance. So what the federal district court did in Alabama was to say that, look, this map does not follow the Voting Rights Act, and therefore you have to redraw a different map. That's what we have done historically with respect to enforcement of the Voting Rights Act. And Alabama could have come back with a new map that would provide perhaps uh, equal opportunity for African-Americans to elect candidates of their choice. But instead of having that process play out as it normally has, we have the Supreme Court step in and stay the district court decision and allow for this um, um, uh, arguably illegal map to go forward. We got this email from William who asks, why are districts not drawn according to just population amounts and locations? I live in Texas. I lived in Texas and currently live in Alabama. I don't understand why some districts stretch across long portions of each state. Bertrand, what can you tell William? So, well, that goes to the um, history. So we have, with respect to um, a, a series of cases in the 1960s, a requirement that each 
district be equally populous. Now, before those decisions, what states did was that they drew malapportioned districts, but they abided by subdivision lines. So they would abide by county lines, for example, and city lines and other examples. With the one person, one vote cases, um, the population equality became the primary consideration. Now, the court did say that, well, we should perhaps consider subdivision lines, but that idea of considering subdivision lines fell away, and population equality has, again, become the priority. As a result, it's given you know, legislatures quite a bit of leeway to draw districts in any way they can if they're not constrained anymore by political subdivision lines, so long as they abide by the equal population principle. Now, I think that that's problematic. I think that there is a balance that, that needs to be drawn. There is the caller's re, um, question that you um, played earlier, why don't we draw districts according to counties, essentially? I think that public subdivision should play a role and that there should be a balance in terms of trying to achieve equality as far as we can, but take into consideration political subdivision lines so that we can constrain the ability of legislatures to draw um, crazy shaped maps for partisan purposes. Here's a message we got from Joe who says, any thoughts on the Democrats gerrymandering in New York? It's not something only Republicans do. Both sides do it. Steve, this is true. We've seen gerrymandered maps from both Democrats and Republicans. Any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's certainly true that both sides do it. I I will say that there's a little bit of incompleteness to that claim. So in the New York example, yes, Democrats in the New York state legislature tried to engage in similar partisan gerrymandering only to have those maps thrown out by the Democratic majority on the New York Court of Appeals, the highest court of the state. So, you know, there's a, a slight difference there. But also, Jen, I think it's not for nothing that one of the measures that Democrats in the United States Congress had proposed as part of their series of election and voting reforms, you know, over the last 18 months was a measure that would, at the federal level, you know, create the kinds of standards for drawing maps that would try to eliminate or at least dramatically reduce partisan gerrymandering across the entire country, at least when it comes to U.S. House districts. That measure was passed by the Democratic majority in the House, and it has no chance of succeeding in the Senate because of the filibuster and the Republicans who would not vote to invoke cloture. So, you know, I I think it's right that Democratic-controlled state legislatures are going to engage in the similar kind of, we might call, rent-seeking behavior when it comes to trying to maximize their partisan political advantage. But at least Democratic judges and Democratic legislators at the national level have been pushing back against this much more than their Republican counterparts. Bertrand, the Voting Rights Act is nearly 60 years old. What do you think we need to see at this point to protect voting rights for all Americans? Well, I think that we need to consider reviving um, parts that have been um, invalidated by the court. Um, As Evan um, described earlier, Section 5, which was a critical provision for protecting voting rights in the South by, in a sense, preempting any discriminatory action. So Alabama state legislature cannot go forward with this map unless it gets approval to show and shows that it's not discriminatory. I think we need to find means of reviving that because if we have the Purcell principle in which anything too close to elections is is not going to be um, 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 adopted in terms of, of decisions, then we're going to have a situation where illegal maps um, that 
discriminate against racial minorities and other classes are going to go forward um, in the future. So I would like to see in part a revival reconsideration. And also I would like to see um, the court in the Evan v. Milligan case um, affirm their support um, of the the constitutionality of the Voting Rights Act. And I think that that's what's at risk here. In the Evan v. Milligan case, we could see the court narrow um, the interpretation and application of the Voting Rights Act, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, in ways that would limit the opportunities to protect minority voting rights um, throughout the country. And so I think that what we need is the court to interpret the act in accordance with how Congress intended it to operate and to um, allow it to go forward to check examples of racial gerrymandering like we see in Alabama. Steve, you know, every 10 years we have a census and those numbers influence redistricting. How do we take politics out of this process? Is it possible? It is possible, Jen. I mean, some states have tried. So um, a couple of states have created so-called independent redistricting commissions, which are meant to be nonpartisan or at the very least bipartisan bodies that have the power to draw these maps um, delegated to them by the state legislature. I think that's one very positive way to do this. The other thing is, you know, I think there are lots of ways to actually agree to uniform standards for drawing maps. Um, There are a number of both political science and law professors who have proposed formula for how we can try to have, for example, geographic divisions play a more dominant role in district creation, that, you know, states should not be able to cut cities into 10 pieces um, when they draw congressional or state house maps. So, you know, Jen, there are solutions available. The critical part is that because the Supreme Court has basically required those solutions to come through the democratic process, (laughs) those solutions have to come from the very process that gerrymandering corrupts. Um, And so it really is a matter of trying to get, you know, gerrymandered state legislatures to agree to limit the ability of their successors to continue doing what they've been doing increasingly over the last 40, 50 years. That's going to work in some states, but it's really an uphill battle in others. That's Steve Vladek. He's a professor at the University of Texas School of Law and author of the forthcoming book, The Shadow Docket, How the Supreme Court Uses Stealth Rulings to Amass Power and Undermine the Republic. Also with us, Bertrand Ross. He's a professor at the University of Virginia School of Law and director of the Karsh Center for Law and Democracy. Bertrand, Steve, thanks for speaking with us. This show was part of 1A's Remaking America collaboration with six partner stations around the country. Remaking America is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Today's producer was Anna Casey with help from June Leffler. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. This is 1A.